before we jump into the text, what you will notice is actually a short passage today. What I want to do is uh, talk to the kids, let y'all know what this uh, little passage is about, what the sermon's going to be about. Okay, so little kids and big kids. Why? Why do little kids and why do big kids like to push stuff over? Like for serious, Peyton, you've got any, uh, like, yes, go for it. Tell me why you push stuff over. Because we feel like it. That is, like, if I, ha- if, if, if there was a long line of dominoes here, what would you have to do? You would have, go ahead. What's that? Be destructive. Thank you for the honesty. Yes, be destructive. Uh, a fort made of pillows. What would you have to do? You'd have to jump in it. You're walking by your little brother or sister. What do you have to do? No, no. No, not push them down, even though you really feel like it. If I had a tower of blocks up here on stage, do you know who, who else couldn't resist pushing them over? The adults sitting next to you. Like, it's this thing of like, oh my, look at that. Boop, I want to knock that over. And maybe it's because you're angry. Uh, maybe it's because you're bored. Maybe because, as we've just said, you just got to see what happens. Uh, hey, there was there's this artist, really quick, there's this artist uh, named Michael who, for an art project, destroyed every single one of his possessions. He destroyed all of his stuff, all 7,227 possessions, from like his postage stamps to his birth certificate, which don't do that, uh, his food, his clothes, his furniture, his paintings, and he had some really nice paintings, even his car. He destroyed his car, a Saab 900. The, la- the last thing he destroyed was a jacket that used to belong to his dad. And he destroyed all this stuff. It wasn't like total chaos, like he set off a bomb or he just lit it all on fire. No, he got some friends, and for two weeks, they, they very, very carefully took apart everything. I mean, they did smash some stuff. They pulverized some stuff. They shredded some stuff. And some stuff they very, very carefully took apart, like the car. And then they threw it all away. They trashed it all. And you think, like, that's really, really wasteful. Well, it, he's an artist. He's an artist. He's making a point by taking apart the stuff that he thinks is taking him apart. He thinks his stuff was like destroying him, like ruling his life, taking him over. So he took apart that thing that he thought was taking him apart. That's just a picture of what God likes to do. Did y'all know this? God likes to take uh, take apart stuff like an artist. Can y'all think of stuff that uh, God, God also likes to knock stuff down. Can y'all think of one thing that God would like to knock down? Paul, Satan, Thank you. Yes, the devil. All evil, our sin. He wants to knock it all down. All that stuff, kids that wants that want to hurt you, all the stuff that wants to hurt you, Jesus actually came to knock that stuff down. That's what happened at the cross. See, all this evil stuff thought that on the cross they were knocking Jesus down. And Jesus let them do that because actually the cross then knocks evil down. So think about it like this. Like, what happens at the cross? Like, imagine a, a big pillow war, and, and there's the enemy, and he's beating Jesus with the pillow. And what Jesus does is he takes the pillow away from the enemy, and he beats the enemy down with that same pillow. And then he goes and he destroys the fort. That's basically kind of what happened at the cross. Uh, Jesus took all evil on himself, 
and he, and he took all sin on himself, all your sin, and he destroyed it by taking it. And that's how he destroys all evil, so that you're forgiven for it. He takes your punishment, and you get all his goodness. At the cross, Jesus took apart evil like an artist, so that it cannot take you apart. And now Jesus is constructing, he's building up his church, and you know what he's building it with? Not bricks. He's building it with you. He's building his church with his people. Jesus is this master craftsman who saves us. That's what the sermon is going to be about today. We're in our series on the Old Testament book of Zechariah. There's a little context. Israel had been taken into captivity by Babylon, this empire. It had been taken into captivity for 70 years. And then Persia, the New World Empire, comes along, defeats Babylon, frees the Israelites, and allows them to go back to their homeland. They can go wherever they want in the empire. You want to go home? Sure, we don't care. Go home. Rebuild your temple. And so some of the Jews do. They leave Babylon. They go. They start uh, rebuilding the temple in Jerusalem, and they find trouble and opposition and heartache and suffering everywhere on all sides. So God sends the prophet Zechariah to these people. And the whole book, the whole thing keeps coming back to this main point that God is with his people, even, even though it doesn't seem like it. And that's why we titled the series. I don't know if you've noticed the, the title of the series. It's called Glory in Our Midst. I've been meaning to tell you this. That is not my title. Totally ripped it off from uh, an Old Testament scholar named Meredith Klein who wrote a commentary on the book of Zechariah called Glory in Our Midst. Uh, and so anything good I'm saying is him. Uh, or if you don't like it, it's him. Uh, my Old Testament professor, too, Gordon Hugenberger. He was a student of Klein's. A lot of good stuff from him. Pastor Todd Bordeaux, another student of Klein's. So just give credit where it's due. Um, the text this morning is Zechariah 1, 18 to 21. It's the second vision. Y'all, we've moved on. Now we're in the second vision. We've been in the first one for a while. And we're only going to be in the second vision one Sunday. We're moving on to the third one uh, next time. So I'm going to throw in, you see the text right there before you. I'm throwing in one verse. I want to throw in that verse 8 from the first vision. You'll see it all, it all, these visions go together. So please stand for the reading of God's word. Just remember, it's, it's the middle of the night, and Zechariah is given this crazy vision of a rider on a red horse standing in the midst of myrtle trees out in the middle of the ocean. It's a vision. And the red rider is the son of God. The myrtle trees are us. Uh, and the watery deep are all the evil forces set against us. So, reading of God's word. Let me preface this with verse 8 from the first vision. It says this, I saw in the night and behold a man riding on a red horse. He was standing among the myrtle trees in the deep. And behind him were red, sorrel, and white horses. And, I, and now verse 18 and I lifted my eyes and saw, and behold, four horns. And I said to the angel who talked with me, what are these? And he said to me, these are the horns that have scattered Judah, Israel, and Jerusalem. Then the Lord showed me four craftsmen. And I said, what are these coming to do? And he said, these are the horns that scattered Judah so that no one raised his head, and these have come to terrify them to cast down the horns of the nations who lifted up their horns against the land of Judah to scatter it. The word of the Lord. Please be seated. 
So in the middle, in the middle of this first vision, Zechariah is given another vision. So he's seeing this vision, right? And then all of a sudden, a new vision in the middle of it. A vision of four horns. And Zechariah says, wait, wait, okay, wait, what are these? And the angel who's with him, who's like acting like his guide through these visions, says that these horns, uh, these are the horns that have, quote, scattered God's people. And you see the same verb that used for scatter. You see it in other parts of the Bible, describing horns that terrify, horns that, that scare God's people. Uh, and what you're seeing is that they're these horns that scare other animals. Uh, and so with these horns, you're supposed to picture an attacking horned beast, like a bull, uh, who is belligerently lifting up their deadly horns to charge an opponent. Like that's, that's the picture. And we got, we've got that same imagery from another Old Testament prophet, Daniel, who, is, who came right before Zechariah, and he overlapped with Zechariah for a little bit. Daniel is actually back in Babylon. Uh, before Zechariah had had this vision, and right before the downfall of Babylon, Daniel had visions of weird horned animals. And one was a ram with two horns, which an angel tells Daniel is a symbol for Medo-Persia. So in Daniel's visions, there are these bizarro beasts. They, they rise out of the sea. And that's the picture here as Zechariah is, is having this, this second vision. The second vision is happening within the first vision. And so the idea is the, these four horns are coming up out of the deep. Which is, remember, the deep is a symbol for all the hostile forces against God's people. And now we see some particular hostile forces coming up, these horns. So the attacking horns, you put all that together, the attacking horns are symbols of political powers trying to keep God's people down. As in, like, not allowing God to fulfill his promises to his people of, of his kingdom. And it's all through persecution of God's people. So the horns are, the horns are Babylon. The horns are, who took God's people into captivity, the horns are Persia who dominate God's people right here. And in the Bible, God's people are pictured as animals. We're, we're pictured as God's flock, his sheep. So in, this, in the second half of Zechariah, we, we've talked about this before, Zechariah is divided into two halves, and the two halves mirror each other. They, they intentionally parallel each other in the way they're structured and in all their themes. So in the parallel passage in the second half of Zechariah, in Zechariah 10, the passage that parallels this one, uh, God's people are a flock being scattered by enemies. So the attacking horns, they're lifted up, they're attacking God's people, and God's people are unable to lift up their heads. Verse 21, these are the horns that scattered Judah so that no one raised his head. So it's an animal-like attack, and God's people are being trampled helplessly. And so the angel explains the horns as animal-like, and then four craftsmen show up, and they show up to deal with the horns. And you'd think... You would think with, uh, you know, uh, we've got charging beasts here. You'd think you'd get four hunters. You'd think you'd get four butchers or four cowboys. And on Friday night, I dreamed, on Friday night, I dreamed I was preaching this. And when I said four cowboys, 
the whole room started laughing and cheering because I was preaching to a room full of Oklahoma State fans. <laughs> Oklahoma State Cowboys. Uh, that was in the dream. And that's a relevant tangent because it reminds us that dreams are weird. And visions are like dreams. These visions, they are like dreams. And so they're weird. Uh, the, the first vision is a warrior mounted. I mean, how weird. It's a, it's a warrior mounted on a red horse standing in the midst of trees. It's all in the middle of the ocean. That doesn't mean, right. It's a, it's a vision. It's a, it's a dream. New vision. Four horns come out of the sea. And just like any freaky dream, uh, the vision morphs. The vision is morphing. It's evolving as uh, with the, the four horns, with the four craftsmen showing up, the four horn imagery grows. It, it, it evolves. It takes on more meaning for, from picturing just beasts to picturing something that is man-made. That's why the craftsmen show up. You, you can find horns projecting out of animals' heads, and you can find horns projecting out of the four corners of an altar. This is, this is why there are four horns, because you're really supposed to be picturing an altar. And the craftsmen show up, and they confirm that. Of you're The craftsmen are there, so you're really supposed to be thinking of an altar with four horns, and they have arrived to deal with this horned altar. You see this language of the lifting up of heads, the lifting up of horns, uh, in the Bible relating to idol worship at pagan altars in pagan temples for false worship. Most recently, this language is used of Babylon and her kings setting up idols of themselves, lifting up their heads, this language of lifting up their heads, and demanding everyone worship them. And that's on the heels of Babylon coming in and destroying God's temple, taking their altar, God's altar, God's four-horned altar, taking all the temple furnishings and taking them back to Babylon and putting them in their temple. So, so let's bring this all together, okay? Bring all the imagery together. The horns of an animal, think of it, they're like a crown, right? So the horns of an animal, like you, you see that and you're like, ooh, power, like strength. Like that's the, you know, horns symbolize like power, strength. The horns of an altar, they serve the same purpose. They're like a crown. And so the horns of God's altar... His altar has four horns. The, the, the symbolism of the horns of God's altar in his temple, it symbolizes his divine power, his divine might, his divine majesty. It's like a crown. And the horns of a pagan altar are the nation's attempt to co-opt that divine might and majesty in the worship of themselves. Okay, let's make a, a point here. Um, the state, because we're talking about like political powers here. I want to be really, really clear in saying the state in and of itself, it is a legitimate institution because it was instituted by God right after the fall. God gives mankind the institution of the state for the express purpose of securing justice and order in society in which believer and unbeliever can peacefully live together and get along. But from its inception, mankind has twisted, in varying degrees, has twisted the this, this state for its own purposes. And, and some of the direct consequences of this is the state has persecuted 
the people of God from the beginning. Here's a super, 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 super obvious, hard example is that uh, not long after Hitler came to power in 1933, the Nazis tried to take over the Christian church in Germany. The Nazi party saw the, the church as a threat and they condemned the church, the, the, the church at that time was called the Confessing Church. They condemned the Confessing Church as preaching, ne quote, negative Christianity. This stuff about sin, this stuff about Jesus as, as Savior and, and dying on a cross for your sins and you having to take up your cross and, and follow him in this hard life and this stuff about this world is not your home, that's all negative Christianity. And so the Nazi party started to promote what it called positive Christianity. And Hitler's newly appointed Nazi minister for church affairs, once it, it, he's talking to a group of clergymen, and he says this. He's explaining this to them, positive Christianity. He says, the Nazi party stands on the basis of positive Christianity, and positive Christianity is national socialism. National socialism is the doing of God's will. God's will reveals itself in German blood. Now, some pastors have tried to make clear to me that Christianity consists in faith in Christ as the Son of God. That makes me laugh. No, true Christianity is represented by the party. And the German people are now called by the party, and especially the Fuhrer, to a real Christianity. The Fuhrer is the herald of a new revelation. Nazi propaganda minister Joseph uh, Grables said that Jesus would discover more of his teachings in what the Nazis were doing than in the church's theological preoccupations with, you know, this trinity, atonement, resurrection stuff. So in 1936, the confessional church in Germany, they sent a letter, they sent a memorandum to Hitler, and it reminded, that it was, it reminded the Nazi leadership that their Nazi party never intended to affirm genuine Christianity that their true intent was to deceive the German people. And this memorandum objected to the Nazis' attempt to de-Christianize the church. It condemned anti-Semitism. It condemned the concentration camps. It condemned the activities of the, Gestapo, of the Gestapo. And it demanded freedom of speech. And it called for the Nazi state to stop interfering in the affairs of the church. They said Hitler is not a priest, even though he says he is. Uh, and that he only pretends to be the mediator between God and his people. He's not. They told Hitler, we don't care what you say. If what you say is against God's will, we're not going to do it. And the Nazi response was swift. The 800 ministers who signed that memorandum paid for it with their lives. The, the, the long-standing tradition of worldly worship, it is not... You know, worldly worship, it's not a longing of the soul for the living and true God of heaven. So here's Meredith Klein. He says this, this you know, longstanding tradition of worldly worship, of the nations worshiping themselves, it's a rebellious attempt of fallen mankind rejecting an unbelief of God's redemptive offer of restoration in order to regain heaven by their own human works. So the four horns of this altar that, that Zacharias sees, it's not God's altar. It's the horns of the altar of the pagan nations lifting up their head, lifting up their horns against God. It is the world powers in rebellion against God because they hate God, 
because they want to be their own God. They want to live in God's world on their own terms. And in being their own God, they want the worship that's due God for themselves. That's the essence of sin. It's a challenge and a rebellion against God of, I want your power, I will sit on the throne, and I'll be my own God. Now, the horns of the nations, what we're saying here is that they're not just directed at God's people, they're ultimately directed at God himself. Mocking God, laughing at God, that he cannot deliver on his promises to his people. The nations control God's people. The nations decide good or bad for God's people. The nations decide whether God's people will live or die. That's how the nations, Babylon and Persia, interpreted their defeat and their dominance over God's people. As in, back, back in the day, if they won a war with, you know, if pagan nation beats, beats another nation, they interpreted their defeat as their gods are stronger than your gods. Uh, that they themselves, because they have these own divine self-conceptions, that they themselves are greater than the gods of these other nations that they defeat. And that included the living God of Israel. The truth is that God actually brought Babylon down on Israel as his judgment against Israel for breaking the law. God raised up Persia to defeat Babylon, to end the captivity, to free his people, to send them back to Jerusalem to worship him. Israel's judgment, it is a warning to the nations like Babylon and Persia. Another pastor put it this way, that that because the nation Israel was in a covenant of works, you just follow me here, it's that that Sinai covenant, uh, that Mosaic covenant, it's a typological, symbolic covenant of works, not, not so that you can inherit heaven, it's so that you get to hold on to the holy land, which is a picture of heaven. Do these works, you get to hold on to the land. A measure of obedience, great, you get the land. You get to be God's kingdom on earth. And they broke that covenant. And because they broke that covenant, they were, Israel was, expelled from the Holy Land. Now, the point is, is Israel is a microcosm of the world. They are, they're, they're a historical parable. They're a microcosm of all mankind. They're a microcosm of all mankind who have broken God's covenant, the covenant of works in Adam, because we all come from Adam. And God's message, this message of Israel to the world is, listen, if God judged his people first for breaking his law, he's also going to judge unbelievers for breaking his law. The judgment of Israel, it is a red flag. It is an alarm bell. It is this loud, visible message to the nations that they needed to repent. They needed to put their faith in this coming Savior that Israel is talking about. But Babylon and Persia, they misinterpret the fall of Israel. And they think it means that their god, Marduk, was the strongest. So this vision is given that God will send his agents of judgment down on these rebellious nations. These agents of judgment, and the agents of judgment are the four craftsmen. We can get this, the Proverbs 8, when God is creating his royal cosmic house, his own divine wisdom 
is personified as the expert craftsman who designs and builds his house. And the irony is that, that when God was building his house, his tabernacle, his temple, you, you remember that he gave certain talents to craftsmen in order to do all the construction, in order to do all the building. And now he will bring craftsmen with the talent for destruction for those who attack God's house. These craftsmen have come to cut off these horns and demolish the world powers. And there are four of them because God will meet and he will match the enemy and he will prevail. If there are four horn powers lifted up, there are four counter agents sent, experts at terrifying and casting down. This is this reversal. The horns have come to terrify. Ooh, here are the craftsmen come to terrify those who terrify God's people. And they're craftsmen, meaning they are very, very skilled at what they do. The effect of a, of a craftsman wielding his craft, it is powerful. In 1850, uh, the, go back to our own history. Uh, in 1850 in the U.S., the Fugitive Slave Law went into effect. And what that was is slave owners could now reclaim escaped slaves using federal marshals, even in states where slavery had been abolished. So uh, Edward Beecher, a pastor in Boston, helplessly fighting against the effects of this new law, soon he, and he writes to his sister, writes to his sister saying, Hattie, if I could use a pen as you can, I would write something that would make the whole nation feel what an accursed thing slavery is. Now his sister Hattie, Harriet Beecher Stowe, had often, she had often encountered runaway enslaved people from neighboring states growing up. And, and, and she heard their stories. Uh, her family was heavily involved in the abolitionist movement. Later, she and her husband were part of the Underground Railroad. And she knew suffering herself. She lost her mom when she was five. She lost her 18-month-old son to cholera. And at one point she wrote, my heart breaks at the cruelty and injustice our nation inflicts on the slave. I am tormented by the thoughts of the slave mothers whose babes are torn from them. I pray to God to let me do a little and to cause my cry for them to be heard. And so soon after, she puts her skills to work and she writes Uncle Tom's Cabin. And the protagonist of her story is a slave named Uncle Tom who suffers more pain, he suffers more loss, he suffers more injustice than any other character in the book. And throughout the book, he is honest and he is sacrificial. He saves the life of a young white girl and he is a faithful Christian. Even though he struggles with his faith, he perseveres. And later, uh, Harriet Beecher Stowe explains that Uncle Tom was based on real life Josiah Henson, a former slave who had become a pastor in Canada who was a craftsman of himself who wrote his own memoirs, which was a huge, huge inspiration for um, Harriet Beecher Stowe's Uncle Tom's Cabin. The book, the book ends with Uncle Tom being flogged because he had helped two slaves escape and he refused to give up their whereabouts. And as he's dying, Uncle Tom is praying for all those who have tormented him including the ones who are killing him. And, and Harriet Beecher Stowe, she wrote the ending first, read it to her family, and they said, 
you have got to tell the whole story. She wrote the ending first because she knew how it had to end. And there are some modern readers that, that hate this story today because uh, they, they have adopted this idea of, of, quote, Uncle Tom as someone who's weak, who just sits there and takes the abuse. But many in Harriet Beecher Stowe's generation read this through the lens of the Bible. And they saw in Uncle Tom, Jesus, the innocent sufferer, despised and rejected by men, by the nations in power over him, who, who took the abuse and yet returned good for evil and prayed for those killing him. And of course, slave owners and pro-slavery institutions and media railed against the book. Uh, and, and, but the book, the book sold 3,000 copies the first day, 10,000 copies the first week. Three paper mills feeding three printing presses running 24 hours a day could not keep up with the demand. 300,000 copies were sold in the first year, 2 million copies in 10 years, and many people did not buy the book because they had already read it in the magazine serials, which it was originally released. And so this book shined a light on slavery, exposing it in a way that had not yet been exposed uh, nationwide. According to the New York Times Sunday Book Review, Frederick Douglass celebrated that Stowe, Stowe had, quote, baptized with holy fire myriads who before cared nothing for the bleeding slave. It so awakened the consciousness of a nation. It so shifted public opinion that many historians believe it helped incite the Civil War. It's said that Abraham Lincoln on meeting Stowe in 1862 said, so this is the little woman that wrote the book that made this great war. That is an example of the work of a craftswoman. And the so what, the so what is Zachariah's night visions have everything to do with the church because these prophecies are fulfilled in what Jesus comes to do. They are not fulfilled, they're not fulfilled with Judah. God's people at that time, they have to look forward and they have to wait for this coming Savior who is pictured. Jesus is the one, the rider on the red horse. He is pictured in the four craftsmen. There's this notion today of, quote, deconstructing the faith. It's the, it's the popular version of a 20th century postmodern idea where the individual attempts to deconstruct and take apart the gospel bit by bit to see, if, to see if it all adds up, to see if each of its parts actually stand up to criticism, to see if all of its parts actually fit together. It, it, it is either, this, this idea of deconstructing the faith is either consciously or subconsciously an attempt to do what the nations are attempting to do, to take apart the gospel so that you can remain your own God. Why are there four craftsmen in the vision? Because there is an answer to the four horns. The nations have scattered and terrified and trampled God's people. They have constructed their own idolatrous kingdoms of power. And God answers the four horns with four craftsmen. And it's not just, it is not just one-to-one -one here. God's answer is this great reversal of tearing down what has been lifted up. So when Jesus comes, the world powers, 
try to finally and fully shut God up and stop him from delivering his promises to his people by crucifying his son. And the world thinks, and it still thinks this way today, that killing Jesus is its victory. Because the world wants you to believe that the world outlives Jesus. The world doesn't need Jesus. They want you to believe that this world will just go on forever and ever and ever. And that what the world has to offer, it is the answer to your every single problem. And because of that, you owe your allegiance and you owe your love to this world. But the great reversal is Jesus' death is his victory. He will cut off and he will cast down all pretenders to the throne and his head will be lifted up in glory. These other horns of worldly power, they are counterfeits of true power. True power who is Jesus, the power of God into salvation. Jesus, a carpenter by trade, is the craftsman who comes to cut off the horns of evil. And in the New Testament, there is, there's another Zechariah, uh, the father of John the Baptist, who prophesies. He has a prophecy about another horn. This horn that he says is the horn of salvation. And it's Jesus. He's prophesying about Jesus and calls him the horn of salvation. Jesus is the horn who is coming for the other horns. In his first advent, he defeats the horns of evil spiritually. And he's coming again. In his second coming, uh, he will put down every enemy physically and fully. He'll put down our sin completely. The world, the, the false church, the devil, and God's people, are, we are going to be given our complete salvation. All of the promises of the kingdom are going to be finally and fully fulfilled. And Jesus, this is, this, Jesus defeating, he's doing it right now, and Jesus defeating the nations right now, it looks like beating them with the gospel. Making his enemies his family and not converting nations. We'll take them one by one. It is not an unchristian thing to say that you have enemies. Y'all, it's a very Christian thing to say that you have enemies. You have enemies. But you are supposed to love your enemies. And you are supposed to believe that this gospel of eternal salvation, it is for your enemies. Loved ones, you are supposed to believe that this gospel is for your political enemies. You are supposed to believe that this gospel is for your enemies overseas, over there. You're supposed to believe that this gospel is for your enemies who are at your work, your enemies around this town, uh, your enemies in your family, that Jesus is for your greatest enemy, which is you. That even though, even though you are cast down right now, Jesus is coming for you. And he will lift you up with him in glory. It's true. Let's pray. Father, help us to hold on to this gospel. Help us to look to the craftsman who has come to set himself against that which is tearing us down in order to build up his kingdom. Father, give us hope for today and for tomorrow, come what may. It's, it's all bigger than, than any of us, any of us here, but it's not bigger than you. So Father, help us to look to you 
and trust that you're caring for us individually, that you're caring for us, your church family. We pray that for your church here in Houston. We pray that for your church across the world. And we pray it in Christ's name. Amen.